You're listening to Trot the Egging, hosted by John Hetherington, working with Witness Rugby Union Football Club, sponsored by Boydells. This week's rugby story is that of a Willowborn fullback, or fly half slash standoff. He's played at elite level for some big clubs and won a European Cup. The clubs are Anselmians, Liverpool St Helens, Newcastle Falcons, Oral, Richmond, Ulster, Stade Francais, Benetton, Caldy, Birkenhead Park, while also representing an island at under-21 level and full level. Ladies and gents, Mr Simon Mason. Follow, like, share, subscribe and endorse us via Facebook, Trot the Eggin, Twitter, at Trot the Eggin, slash at John Heath, Instagram, Trot underscore D underscore Egg underscore In, YouTube, Trot the Eggin, LinkedIn, John Hetherington, and Spotify, Trot the Eggin. So Simon, how have you and the family been, mate? Yeah, great. Yeah, no, really good. Um, you know, obviously COVID was one of those, wasn't it? For a lot of people, it was like a bit of a, a sort of reset button. Um, yeah. For me, it was like the end of my rugby career, properly playing, being stupid enough to play in my late 40s. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but no, all good. You know, we're back to normal at school and, uh, you know, my, my oldest daughter's at university. She's studying to be a nurse. So just the trials and tribulations of teenage daughters, you know, as, as a good fun. <laughs> Yeah, you've been around them enough, mate, haven't you, with that, some of the teams you've been at, which we'll touch on. So just before we get stuck into your rugby story, mate, where was home for you as a kid and who lived well, with you? Yeah, well, I grew up on the Wirral, um, right, which is right. where now I'm settled again. Um, grew up in Birkenhead, well, just you know, just not far from Tramia Rovers ground. And um, yeah, my dad was a, was a sort of former... Um, well, old founder member of Old Antarians, and uh, actually, he'd actually gone to St Edward's College in Liverpool, but the right. family were from Birkenhead, and I, I sort of, uh, you know, was loved the football, but also got that the rugby bug from him, really. Right. So, was you involved in both sports early doors, then, mate? Yeah, very much yeah. so. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, just being in Merseyside, it's quite football there, and the same with the kids now at school. A lot of them play natural sport spend anyway playing football growing up with the football at your feet and then we just had the, you know the Wirral's got quite a lot of rugby sides as you know and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it's quite strong so Anselmians as it was I then went to St Anselm's College so yeah a good pedigree of players as well at the time Austin Healy and myself played in the same team and you know so the Savamuto brothers some good players came through the college well what what a lot of listeners well, no, mate, it's the fact that, obviously, because I play for the Wits, we had a lot of the St. Eddie's lads come. Yeah. Uh, and Liverpool produced some top players, don't they, that, that you probably wouldn't anticipate come from, like, Merseyside, like you said, really. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, like, you know, even, you know, Merchant Taylors, obviously, with Mike Slammon, who was yeah. closely linked with in the early days with Oral, when, when he was coaching Oral. I mean, he, he brought a lot of good players through, like Ben Kay, um, his own son. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... Um, I mean, I always say that to the lads now at school. You know, the the a lot of our best players are lads who haven't touched a rugby ball before they actually get to secondary school. But their the natural movement and their sort of vision is, if they're good footballers and they like to get stuck in, then they tend to be naturals at rugby. Once you teach them how to tackle and and things like that. Yeah, right, mate. So, what what club was you first introduced to, and how did that come about, rugby wise? What. What club? So, yeah, what was your junior well, club? Yeah, well, I'd say my dad was um, was part of old Ansalmians rugby club, now yeah. Ansalmians, and they had the link to the schools and Ansalms. So right. as as I saw, I was the youngest. My two older sisters were 
So when I came along, it was literally my dad wanted to keep playing in his like 50s, 40s, 50s. It was take me along. So I just grew up alongside rugby and, you know, being abandoned inside the pitches on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and, you know, it was great, you know. Um, yeah. So it was the same. <clears throat> my dad was also part of the Cheshire Committee. He was on okay. disciplinary for a bit. So, um, you know, he, he, yeah, just was really, um, you know, rugby just became sort of part and parcel of my life from a young age. So do you remember back then how it was? Was it like, uh, was it full pitch? Was it tackle, tag, was it? Well, play. I played mini rugby uh, from yeah. about five or six. And I think it, from what I can remember, it's probably like, you know, 22 area, half a pitch. Yeah. But um, we had a really good team. In fact, funny you say that on Friday, we're all going out. The old team we used to play for, which we ended up under 11s, under 12s before we went to secondary school. We had a, some yeah. real good ding-dongs with... Um, you know, with teams, local teams, won a load of the local competitions. We're all getting together on Friday night in Liverpool, having a few beers and that. Yeah. So some of them obviously all went to St. Anton's as well afterwards. But it's just, yeah. you know, it was nice because it's sort of, uh, you know, not, the lads keep in touch still now. No, it's good. And I think sport particularly, but rugby's one of them where that actually, it lasts forever. Them bonds, don't they, mate? Yeah, right? definitely, uh, 100%. So was there any, um, like, rep stuff? when you're younger. So did you go Merseyside and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I so really for me, that side of things happened when I went to secondary school. I went to St. Anselm's College where I now yeah. teach and uh, run the rugby. But so, you know, we had some good players at the time. And um, I remember sort of breaking into like the, the Cheshire side about 15 and 16. I mean, it was it was mad because coming through then, I was a fly off until I went yeah. to, back to fullback when I got to under 18s. But obviously Neil Ryan, You've probably heard of really good player, yeah, you know, yeah. good rugby from De La Salle, and he was um, ended up having a good rugby union career, but he was just unbelievable player. So it was like you'd come up against him every year for Lancashire and think, oh, that's like another level altogether. Yeah, yeah. Well, even at that age, you'd think that's Yeah, right. he played yeah. England under 16s a year early and then played England under. We always used to laugh, Austin and I, when we went to university because he was the man with the most stash ever because he'd been in the England <laughs> setup for about six years when he was about 19. So he just seems to have banks of England stash and North stash and everything the whole yeah. time. It's brilliant and all that stash hasn't gone out of fashion, yeah. mate. I know, it? yeah. It's still what you look for, isn't it? Yeah. So how, how was you as a kid, say, say you went to the trials and that and it didn't work out? How, how did you used to take that? Well, the, the first experience was like when I was under 15, so what, year 10 now, like fifth, yeah. fourth year, I remember getting knocked back at, um, for Wirral, for Wirral School, West Cheshire, really. Right. And then and we had the guy Martin Regan, who's famous England international, who's our rugby coach. And when I, I had a really good season at the end of the season, they had some more rep games, and he rang up the coaches and said, "Listen, you're gonna have to give him a run because he's playing really well." And yeah. then I broke in and I never looked back. But I, I still use that as like a sort of story for the kids when they don't get picked. Sometimes you know, it, you can go one or two ways. It can either be something that just knocks you, and then you feel sorry for yourself, or you just. Well, you look at the people in your position and you think, well, I've got to get better and I want to play to a yeah, higher yeah. level and I want the next time we come to a trial, I want to be better than them. So, you know, in many ways, it's part of life. It's part of selection. It's why I still like sports at school because ultimately we'll always have a winner and a loser. A lot of kids are sort of brought up now just thinking that life's just going to be laid on a plate for them while sports still gives you those instincts of like, you know, there'll be days when you play well and you lose and other days when you get a lucky bounce and you win, but it should teach you sportsmanship and, and resilience as well. Yeah. 
So how was your transition into high school? Do you reckon spot out with that? Yeah, very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, and um, you know, I say, St Anne's was always a rugby tradition, even though we are in Merseyside, it's quite a football area. You know, we all like football, watching Tranmere and Liverpool and Everton, but we, it was a rugby school. And, you know, as soon as you went to St Anne's, there was no, you know, no bones about it. This was a rugby school and they were going to play against, you know, the top schools and they wanted to compete. So, you know, it was always part of my life and competition was always part of my life. And I think it was important, yeah. that. Both sides of the car and that as well, isn't it? You, you said it yourself, yeah. So, when when you were playing standoff, mate, how did you? Because as you get older, the game changes. It we call it like rugby league, call it standoff. We call it fly half number ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way, you're a pivot, aren't you? So, how did you your vision improve, and did that come from anybody, or was it just a natural progression in you? Because the game yeah, gets tougher I mean, at ten, doesn't it? Yeah, again, I, I probably, you know, it's a good point, that, because I think probably later in school, I, I sort of had a flirt around with sort of, I played in the forwards, then I went to scrum half, and then I went out, and then I sort of dropped away from rugby for a year or two, and it was only about, as I say, when I got back year nine, year ten, so third year, fourth year, I went then, a lad, really good lad called Chris Jones had left school to go up. His mum and dad had things split up and he went He went to Scotland with the mum. And he was the best player in the team at fly half alongside yeah. Healy and I. And they needed someone. I had a decent boot and the, the teacher put me there. And then I went, I was at fly half for a few years. And then as I went up to sixth form, I went back to fullback. And it just seemed to be, I'd play fly half for the school team and fullback representative wise. But I always thought that was good because... When you're a fly half, you sort of you need to be thinking what a fullback's going to be thinking all the time. And when you're a fullback, you want to be sort of double bluffing the fly half. He obviously was a lot of kicking and yeah, yeah. tactical kicking. So you know where you stood and then moving around, but thinking where what the fly half would be thinking, or and then vice versa. I go back to fly half and think, well, I know what the fullbacks wanted me to put the ball. So you'd bluff it and put it the other way, and just instincts like that. And then you know, I just found it, you know, it was good to play both positions at that age, really. Yeah. So attackively, would you split the pitch with your 10 and 15? Because that was before the 12 was a second distributor, really, wasn't it? Back when we were playing. Yeah, and a little bit. Saw you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were, we played a reasonable good band of rugby at Salam at the time and moved the ball around. But I mean, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of playing fullback, which hasn't changed dramatically now, is, you know, obviously an attack just to join the line and get involved and, you know, even, you know, I was never blessed with pace, but I was always had good reading of the game, could run good lines. And I think that got me away with not being that quick. You know, a lot of players, even when I went higher up the levels, had blistering pace, but the fastest players don't always utilise that pace effectively. So yeah. certainly I was probably, you know, my skill level was more than back then, you know, got me out of trouble a bit more than my actual pace did. I mean, I think nowadays you'd struggle to play in the back three at a decent level of rugby union or league without being blisteringly quick, wouldn't you? But yeah, you know, yeah. in the sort of 80s, 90s transitional period there, you know, if you, if you were a good player, good footballer, could read the game. And I think my full-back abilities came from being, you know, a reasonably competent 10 and understanding the role of full-back and sort of being able to second-guess sometimes what the 10 would do, got me again into the right positions, I had good positional play instincts I think which got me out of trouble a few times yeah so did you did you enjoy it because you'd have played with like an intense defense in your face so did you enjoy having a bit more time to look up you're saying yeah. you, you weren't the quickest but your game now's put you in the right places at yeah. the right time I mean 
Yeah, it was just definitely. I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed fullback and then obviously played all my professional career fullback. There was definitely more space. Yeah. My my attributes was decent under the high ball and reading the game was good. But you know, but then I liked it. I mean, the latter part of my career, when I finished professional level, I went to Cold even played 10. It was nice to coach at 10 as well. It's a good position. I think if you've got good leadership skills, you know, you can sort of run the game a little bit at 10 and be able to sort of you know, talk other players around you through the game. That's that's the one thing I find frustrating now with a lot of kids. They don't they don't really watch enough probably rugby on TV. They're, they're quite well versed in the skills and the physical attributes. But sometimes the game can just be you know quite easy if you if you if you one step ahead of it. And I think sometimes that's just having a rugby brain, which is probably the one thing we're trying to develop say, at schoolboy level for us at the moment. Yeah. So what would you? Remember about the selection processes for them rep stuff? Um, I mean, it was Cheshire was very traditional, like it probably is now. We we just had really good we're all grammar and St. Anton's had really good teams at the time. So yeah, you know, we were going far in national competitions, both schools we were we were going toe to toe in our own games. So there just seemed to be a lot of West Cheshire players in that Cheshire setup at the time, but it was always heavily biased to sort you'd go to you know, representative trials, and it'd always be the usual sort of, you know, like lads from Lim and lads from yeah. Maxfield. And, you know, that's always in any, probably same in Lancashire and Yorkshire. There's always sort of like different types of selectors. We, I was just fortunate that, you know, we, we always had we always had good representation from, from the West side, the Wirral side, in right. the Cheshire side. Um, and again, another guy like Mike Briars was really um, quite a good coach. He was the world grammar coach so you know he he gave me my first big opportunity when he picked me for the north of england school boys at under 18 level and they moved tim stimson out to the wing and i got in a fullback I and mean, it was only for a game but at the time that was a big thing and you know again i suppose even back when i went played for ireland you know they had like five six men selection committees and it was all a bit like that now yeah you know all the way through coaches tend to have more of a of an input themselves of what they want they'll pick won't they and uh, yeah even like back mid 90s when I got played for Ireland you know it was like there'd be a different selector from each province and it was all a bit of a trade-off for selection all the time that's why there was such a change around in the team all the time yeah so with you with you being amongst them good teams Simon so the standard wouldn't have been a lot different from club to school and then club school to county would it really because you were in and around them players and clubs all the time weren't you yeah, and that, I think that probably is a good point. Like, certainly by about 17, 18, like the Sands team and the World Grammar team, we had a lot of players in Cheshire anyway because we were both so successful. And it's just, you know, it was just even at schoolboy level for me, playing for the school first, that was a really highly competitive level. You know, like Boston Healy, Graham Pepperdy was England schoolboy. So, yeah. you know, the, the standards were being set by our sort of team in training. So you then go to county sort of trials and, and you know a lot of the time you know it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that big a jump up because the quality yeah. of we were playing at schoolboy level but but again even then another point I mean I always find I say this again to the kids to coach you you know you go up a level or two and actually it's it is harder because you're going up to a higher standard but you're also playing alongside players who are much better and much more competent at the different facets of the game so if you're suddenly a fullback and you're on really good quick competent wingers who were talking to you it makes your job a lot easier at fullback than it would say you know playing with with players who aren't necessarily at that level so I think yeah. going up the leagues for me in the early years of when I went through the leagues quite quick you know it, it was 
you suddenly play in each level with better players. The game's quicker and it's harder, but you know, but everyone's on your wavelength and the standard of the game goes up. So uh, yeah. that was one of the things I remember about you know going up the leagues in about a three four year period. The one thing I just said, like I didn't play to, to your standards and that, but when I used to play against you, you guys and the teams we were playing against, you know, I think it was was it North or West when you were finishing at Anselmians, I think it was. Yeah. It was like the higher you went, even if it was a step or two, it, it was just cleaner. It was yeah. just like the basics were really good. Yeah. And even it's, higher again, you know, like even at Coldy's level now, you know, that yeah. up to championship. Yeah. Play it. And even the modern game's a lot more sanitised than it was when 10 years ago. But as you say, people are much more... If you give a yellow card or a soft penalty or you cheap shop, cheap shop someone and get sent off, it costs your team, doesn't it? Oh, the game's time, a bit yeah. quicker. People haven't got time to be met. Yeah. You, know, you know, there still was a lot of, like, off-the-ball stuff back in the day, but most of yeah. it was really, like, it was a quicker, faster game. And yeah. you know, especially what's rugby at professional level now, league and union, people just can't be taking risks. If, if, no, especially no. if you catch anyone high, you're off, aren't you? It yeah, gets reviewed yeah. and, you know, if you're even a millimetre out, you're gone and that's the end of your international yeah. career or your professional that's, career, isn't it? Yeah, so like the Wits play of Creston in the Lancashire Cup last year in the final at Wigan and, and I thought that just the pure difference was like the clean-outs were quick and clean. Yeah, Every pass was like on the button, no like stuttering for it straight to on the money every pass yeah. it was just mega yeah. like clean that's what I thought the big difference was considering who he played so I imagine when you go higher it's just quicker and cleaner yeah every time is, yeah, yeah. so when true. when do people start sniffing round you then mate when was your talent getting noticed well, I mean again even that was probably different then to it is now because um, I mean for me you know, I, I probably a big break for me was at the end. Go, I got to North of England schoolboys squad with Austin, myself, a few of us, and and then really after that, I I sort of went off to university and I was playing well for Ant Armians for a year, but I was in the North of England under twenty one setup straight away, and then because of my Irish qualification, the Irish selectors were wanted me to go and play for the Irish Exiles. So it was around then, really. I mean, the game wasn't at that point, even close to being professional, but it was just getting to that point where, you know, there were there were clubs that, you know, sort of oral probably weren't as, as onto it as others like Northampton, but clubs were sort of wary of you, were, were chatting to you all the time, like Waterloo were quite big on that. And, you know, yeah. there were things like, you know, little incentives for going to places, but, you know, it was around that time, leaving school and, you know, what were we in there was sort of probably 93, 92, 93, when, you know, we're only a couple of years away from professionalism then. And a lot of the clubs, on the, the more ambitious clubs were just starting to look at, you know, trying to sign players and, uh, you know, bring them in, you know, with some sort of incentivization, really. Not necessarily getting paid, but yeah. you know, things like travel, travel, travel um, expenses and, you know, maybe a car. Like we were university lads, so... You know, just little things like that would make a big difference to you. You know, a couple hundred quid a week would make a massive yeah, difference. Yeah. No, it, don't, it would now, mate, never mind then, wouldn't it? But, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. yeah. So how, it's a fast, how did he find out about your eligibility for countries, mate? Do you have to disclose that when you... Well, yeah, I mean, I was sort of... I think it was just, you know, my family was Irish, so it was quite well known anyway, that. And there was a right. guy called um, the late Jim Harty, who was quite high up in the Irish exiles, and he got wind that I was... 
sort of playing, getting, you know, playing a decent level. He came to watch me and I very quickly, that was the big thing. But once I got, once I got, I, I went to Newcastle um, in 94 and that was when I broke into the Irish under 21 side. And, you know, that was the bit when I started to feel like I'm quite close to this level now. You know, I'm not that far away. I played for Ireland under 21s against England under 21s. And, um, you know, we, it, it, we beat them. And it was just, you know, it was just starting to think I'm in this setup. And, you know, within a year or two, I could really could genuinely play international rugby. And around that time, I got signed up by Oral. Simon Langford had retired, and Oral were looking for. Um, a fullback to replace him. But again, even that, you know, like now it'd be really sort of, there'd be someone ringing you up. I mean, I think Sammy Southern might have phoned me up or someone, but, you know. On the landline. No yeah, there was no big <laughs> phone. Yeah, so there was no big yeah, fanfare. Yeah. No one, it was just, he was Healy more than anyone. He said, listen, do you fancy coming to tomorrow next year? This is Simon Langford. He's retiring now, good player, but he's, you know, you'd, you'd fit the bill here because you're a goal kicker and a fullback and that's what they're looking for. And it was just a bit like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll go there. Sex minute, you suddenly in and around a load of like top players and you're playing in the Premiership. And it's like, you know, say it's just all part of that development. But the, it wasn't like now where there's academies and people know you from when you're 15, 16. There's a pathway for you. Yeah. It's just you had to do it yourself. And for me as a goal kicker, I always thought, well, I'd rather be the frontline kicker and move up the leagues, being the main man at each place I played rather than just jump too quick. And then be, you know, not, and then be lost for a couple of years because, you know, especially as a goal kicker, you have to be kicking every week to get yeah, better, yeah. To, to deal with the pressure. So when did you discover that you were pro, you prolific with the boot, mate, weren't you? So when yeah. did that become a thing? Was it? Uh, yeah, at school, really, yeah. I mean, it was just the same. I mean, all the way through school, because it was a football, I could strike a yeah, ball yeah. really well. And then... I suppose, you know, as I started to hit the representative size, being a good kicker was another thing. It wasn't the reason you were picked, but if you're suddenly knocking balls over from, it got you noticed. And and, and there weren't that many good goal kickers around sort of early, um, you know, early 90s. And I just, I just suddenly thought, so I, I was a big, I was a big sort of, you know, watched a lot of rugby and I followed rugby and, there was a lad, Grant Fox, in New Zealand. He was like this you know, world-class goal kicker. And I used to read articles on him and, you know, about how I was training. I would practice for like an hour or two hours a day sometimes. And I just got obsessed about it. And, pra and, and a bit like being a golfer or a tennis player, if you're practicing all the time, you do get better. You know, it's like shock horror, you get better. And it's like, you know, and that for me suddenly gave me a lot of confidence. And, and before I knew it, I was like, you know, getting a reputation for being a top-line goal kicker. And then... Yeah, that that again just was reasons why teams are that interest in you because as a point scorer, you know, whether you're the fastest or whatever, it helps if you're a good player. But that was the main reason. You know, a lot of teams giving a lot of penalties away back then, you know, yeah. and the game was quite unstructured. So, you know, if you're knocking over 15, 20 points a game, it got you noticed and got you in the shop window. And that really probably was the, the catapult for me in those early years. Yeah. So who was your first club leaving school? Was it Oral, yeah? Well, no, no, it was so, so I had it. So I left school, but I was, I went to Anselmians and they were down the leagues. It was local rugby, but, but, uh, but I was at university playing, playing at um, Leeds University with, with, you know, quite Dan Luger and Healy and, uh, and Jimmy Naylor and all these players. So, you know, but, but I just went, then I went to LSH and then I had the move to Newcastle because it was part of my year out at university. So, 
So I sort of moved quite a bit in the first few years. And then so it was all settled in Newcastle, but I had to go back to university and Leeds. So and that's when Oral got hold of me. And that so it all crossed over. It was sort of, you know, a bit lucky in some ways because it was at the time the Irish thing was kicking off. And then you know, obviously they were delighted that I was suddenly going to a premiership club and was frontline kicker and in the shop window. And that year we got capped in 96. So how was you in a new environment, mate? Was it easy for you to fit in? Yeah, I used to like it. I mean, I never saw moving or anything like that as a challenge. You know, it was just another, again, because a lot of the time, if you're doing well at a level and someone at a higher level wants you to go there, it fills you with confidence, doesn't it? That you think, well, they, they must see something in me they want. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, whenever I moved, you know, I always moved and I always did well. You know, I went from Ansarms to Liverpool, St. Alan's was like leading point scorer that year in the league. And then, Newcastle snapped me up because it was on my year out and they got me up to Newcastle to do my surveying year out. And, and again, I was leading point scorer in the championship. And, and that's when, you know, Oral came in around the time I was playing Irish under 21. So, you know, I, it was just, you know, success breeds success. And I say I was just, I knew my kicking was such a, a prolific part of the game that I practiced a lot of it. And not that many people were probably, up until the Johnny Wilkinson sort of era, not that many people were probably, Practicing. I mean, the one I remember, for enough from around here, is Frano Botica just yeah, suddenly yeah. turned himself into this, like, machine kicker, didn't he? But yeah. I think, you know, when I read articles on Frano, he was talking about Grant Fox, because same sort of principles, he'd just be out there practicing. And, you know, and it, it, you know, it's a big, it was a big thing back then. If you were a goal kicker of note and you were successful, then, you know, whether you were a good player or not, you, you, your place was assured, wasn't it, back in those days? Yeah, and it's just about... Trust in the process, whether you're a 50 up or one down, isn't it? Stick to your yeah. routine. And, yeah, that's it. And I, I just, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that got better over the years with professionalism and video analysis and everything. But, you know, for me, and, I, you know, I said that in one of those, you know, podcasts I did recently, you know, so I was probably too obsessed in those early years. I probably did too much. You know, I had this routine of, I think it was 30 kicks. They're all quite straightforward kicks, but if I even missed one, I started again and I could be out yeah. there sometimes for that. And I'd, sometimes I'd just have to walk in because I'd be, you know, it just mashed my head that I was missed. But it got me really trained up to be, you know, just constantly practice. The other thing with goal kicking is everyone thinks, you know, you, you do win the odd game with a late kick from wide out. And, but, you know, nine out of every 10 kicks is, is, is a relatively straightforward kick. The top kickers just don't miss those kicks. No, you know, that's the thing of saying again to kids at school. They, everyone goes out first kick to do is fifty meters on the halfway line. It's like it's you unrealistic. Might get one, yeah. one of them every two games. The reality is, you get all your kicks in that fifteen meter to fifteen meter area, just outside the twenty-two. And if you're knocking ninety percent of them over, then you know, you know, you, you coach your forwards, your other players are made up every game. You're yeah, scoring yeah. points, aren't you? And that's how. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I just became quite sort of, you know, quite metronomic for doing that and not missing much, and that gets you noticed, I suppose. Yeah. And did you ever feel in them early days overall by any... Because the clubs you're talking about were all big clubs, aren't they? They've been... They've been... Uh, they're well-recognised. Yeah, I mean, again, like a bit like you're saying there, but, you know, that always used to pain me, like not making... Not being selected for that West Cheshire thing. I think I always use things... To, to motivate myself. I, I had some real shockers in the early days. I mean, I'd be kicking kicks from the halfway line a lot and then miss an easy kick under the post on the 22 or something. And they were the things that always sort of just inspired me to want to practice more. I thought, you know, and, you know, probably it was only when I got to sort of 
real professional level at Richmond had a kicking coach. Um, you know, you just started to think more deeply about it. You know, I probably dare say too much physical work and sometimes the mental side of the game and your mental preparation and, you know, actually having the confidence not to do too much and to do quality over quantity is something that that just comes with experience and, and, and coaching as well, I suppose, good coaching. Yeah. So we'll start at Anselmians then, mate, before you made all your big moves. Does it just like your second home and you're playing with your mates and then that's when the seriousness starts beginning after that move, is it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, looking back, it was sort of probably bizarre that went, you know, it was a quite decent, you know, played North of England under 18. You know, Austin went to Waterloo straight from school. A couple of the other players went to likes of uh, New Brighton and Park, who were good clubs at the time. But I just felt it suited what I was doing. I, I was in and around the Cheshire under-21s and the North of England 12s and just playing for them. It was felt like, you know, a lot of lads are new. And, you know, they, they again, they were quite generous to me. They gave me, they paid for my travel to come home at the weekends. I had a girlfriend on the Wirral. So, you know, it tied in quite well. I was just enjoying it with, with you know, and they were... You know, even though they weren't at a high level, there's a lot of ambitious young players and and we just, you know, we played some good rugby. So, you know, it was, um, but it, but I probably, you know, realistically should have gone to a high level straight away. But but it, it served its purpose, scored a lot of points, had a good time. And then I, I played a lot of representative rugby that year for the Cheshire under-21s, North of England 12s, Irish Exiles under-21s. So, so really, you know, I probably played as many games again, representative-wise. So, it sort of suited probably not playing a really, really high level on a Saturday because I was playing a lot Sunday and midweek games. So, yeah, yeah. you know, but you know, it's like when you're that age, when you're 18 and 19, you play every day of the week. Yeah, something. you're invincible, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, you probably was, I weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so how does, how does your next move come about and, and well, where was it and how come it was then? Yeah, well, it was, um, I went to Liverpool, St. Helens. It was actually a guy, Dave Buttery, um, who was, who was a decent coach. He was the Cheshire County coach. And I broke into the Cheshire senior team as well that year, even though I was at Ansamians. And and I think everyone at Ansamians knew I needed to go on then at that point. Yeah. And, he, and he just, it was that was the equivalent of level three with Liverpool. So there was Kev Sims there, who was a really good, you know, only just played for England a couple of years earlier. So, you know, they 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 dropped down a level, but they it was still a good quality. And again, a really good time at Liverpool Sales. That that underpinned my sort of, you know, again, my professionalism in training and likes of Kevin Sims was was really good because he'd been at international level, played for England and was captain of the north of England, the full north side. So, you know, I felt I had a really good mentor with Kev. And um, and there was a lot of other good players there as well. So you know, that was just a good move for me at the time. And, um, you know, so, you know, probably, again, was ready to move after that. Didn't, you know, I was getting this reputation moving around, but I was doing it because it was selfish and I wanted to play the highest level of cup. And then the move to Newcastle, the next one was the big one, really. That was the big move for me, I think. If I, if I look back at my career, that was the one that really felt like at that time I was going to a professional level. Yeah, that kicked you off that, that move then, mate, yeah. Yeah, Newcastle Gosforth was, you know, they now became obviously Falcons now, Newcastle Falcons, yeah. but it was just a really good setup, a really good club. They they went out of the way to, they got me a place to live. They, they sought me out the surveying job, which is part of my university course. So, you know, they weren't paying me, but the, the job were paying me. And then I had a car and a house and uh, 
you know, and that was really good setup. You know, good gym. They had membership as a gym, and the pitch was fantastic up at Newcastle. So, you know, that that really was that year combined with breaking into the Irish under twenty one team and getting established to that level was was probably the defining season for me in terms of a breakthrough year. Right. So, how what sort of clubs were you playing against, and? What memories stick out for Yeah, well, well, that was probably the equivalent now of championship level. So we were playing London Scottish, we were playing, um, you know, know, likes of rugby and um, Blackheath and all that. But also we we got Wasps in the Cup and I had a really good game against Wasps. Rob Andrew was playing 10 for Wasps. And I mean, you know, they gave us a bit of a lesson on the day. But again, it... Even though we got beat, I had a good game and it just, you know, I scored a lot of points and it just reaffirmed that this is a young kid who, who's in the limelight and I'd just broken into the Irish All-21 team in November and, you know, I just felt that, like, you know, my career was moving in the right direction. That Yeah, and you're talking about levels, mate. That's a, that's another level again, pitting against someone like Rob, isn't it? And yeah, knowing where well, you need to be. 100% and that, you know, it was an eye-opener that day because, you know, I'd grown up probably like a lot of people watching Rob Andrew playing for England thinking, oh, you know, he's all right, Tim, he's just a bit of a kicker. But when you when I played against him that day, he was sensational and I just thought, this guy's at another level. And again, it was another one of those, what do you do? Do you think, oh, I'm not good enough for that? Or do you go away and go, well, I want to get better? I saw him before the game, I chatted to him, actually. Yeah. I did a nice thing with him because I was kicking in the morning and he was kicking... He's obviously very professional, got up and practices kicking. I think his parents lived in Durham, so he'd driven up from London to stay with them, gone to the ground. And I I showed him where their hotel was because he didn't know where it was. So I and he had a good chat with him and he talked me through the things that you needed to do and, you know, how to become a top player. And I never forgot that. He was very, uh, you know, he was a tough opponent, but he had time to speak to young players and he was really good in terms of his, his advice and, you know, and, and and wanted people, and you know, and again, as a goal kicker, you know, I, he was telling me the amount of hours he did and the amount of hard work he put in, and it was it was quite a sort of, you know, one of those moments to look back and think that was big moments in my career, really, just meeting him and listening to him and thinking this isn't just by fault that you become this good. It's actually somebody who practices and trains and works really hard. Nice touch from him as well, especially considering you drove into a dodgy bit. B and B, and then had to take him the proper hotel. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. No, he, but it is uh, a nice yeah. little touch, isn't it? It's, yeah, it was, yeah. and you know, and he was, you know, he's a tough fella. Don't get me wrong, you know, on the pitch there was like no mess. You could tell he meant business, but he was just, um, you know, I, I looked up to him, you know, as I was growing up, even though I was sporting live and rugby, and mm-hmm. we used to watch England Island games, we sport Island, but I just had something about Rob Andrew. I just liked the fact that he, he made the most of his talents, and actually, ironically, playing against him properly. He was a much better player than gave, people gave him quality for, you know, or really, yeah. really thought he was. We're all superstars on the couch, Simon, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> so exactly. how did the 21s call up come about? How did they used to let you know? Is it letters or come and yeah, visit you? Yeah, well, it, yeah. Was, it was. It was a bit like that back then. It was, it was sort of, um, you know, I just got, yeah, I mean, I was in and around the setup. I sort of knew I'd be involved in the games. And, you know, it was nice because you got the proper, you know, the sort of shamrock and it came through an official letter and then you were selected and, uh, you know, it was really, it was, it was, it was good. Um, I mean, even that you're saying there about that, I mean, the story I remember there when it was, when I got selected for Ireland, it was in the final year at Leeds and 
and and it, that was literally a phone call. You know, I, I thought it was a bit of a wind up. Someone just phoned the house and was like, "Is that time in this?" And then it was like, <laughs> "Next week." Yeah, and I thought it was one of the lads, like Jim Nay, yeah. <laughs> taking the piss. But and that was literally how they did it. You know, they just rang you up and said you selected and to come over to Dublin on, you know, Wednesday on the next flight type of thing because you're playing at the weekend. And it was mad how you think now it's the world's just changed so differently to that now, isn't it? It has, mate. Yeah. So. What brought an end to the Newcastle spell? Was it you said was it uni again, mate? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, people thought it was crazy that I moved, but um, you know, and ironically, that following year was when Newcastle got taken over by you know the for John Hall and all that yeah. around the football. But but again, the, the oral thing was just Austin rang me and he said, "Listen, you know, they really want you to go." Because uh, classic Austin, he goes, I think you're crap, but he goes, they, they think you're good, you know. Yeah. Said, well, I mean, there is a place for you and um, and we're all going to be at uni next year again, last final year. We'll all travel across in the car. Dan Luger was was signed and Jim Naylor and Austin. It just, I thought, you know, good young players all playing together and, and the main kicker and goal, goal kicker and fullback was retiring. So again, Newcastle weren't too happy because they'd looked after me for a year, but I just thought, you know, this is it. This is the chance to go to the highest level of rugby and play in the Premiership. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Laurel were a good club with a good reputation for, for sort of competing. And um, and, it, and it was brilliant. Went to Oral and, you know, it was what it was. It was no, there were no frills and there was a little bit of expenses for travelling, petrol expenses. But, you know, you weren't going to Oral for a big deal or it was like, you know, it was literally us against them every week and playing against Harlequins and Wasps and you know, Northampton and Leicester, you know, I remember the first game playing down at Leicester, first big away game, you know, 17,000 people. It was just like, you know, it was, it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever ever done in my life, you know. How was you before the game? Was you yeah, a nervous probably, guy anyway? Or? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm quite relaxed, but I think the problem being a goal kicker is you just, you always sort of think the worst, you know, you just, you realise it could all, and then, once you're out there, it's fine, but it's that, you know, they're sitting in the hotel a couple of hours before the game thinking, oh, what if I slip or what if I do this or what if I look like a right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just the demons and yeah. it's very rare you don't get that. And I suppose in a way, you know, that that gives you the edge and makes you quite, you know, that the nerves can drive you on, can't they? But, yeah. but, you know, but in the early years as a young lad, they do become a bit debilitating and then when you get on the pitch, it's fine, but it's the bit beforehand and the walk into the changing room and just feeling sick and, you know, yeah, say yeah. moments like that you don't forget. I mean, I wasn't because I'd played in like away at Welford Road, seventeen thousand, quite on top of you. Suddenly playing at Twickenham or Lansdowne Road, it it wasn't it wasn't as overwhelming because you sort of had that you know a bit of a lead up to that. I think if I'd only yeah, ever yeah. played in front of a thousand people or something, it would have been more nerve wracking. But you know, yeah, that was it'd become a bit hardened to it. I mate, think yeah. so. Yeah, it was. You know, because then afterwards you think, well. Why did they let the nerves get to me? Because once you're out there, you know, it's just a sea of faces and you react to yeah. a game like you would if you're playing, you know, in a local match. You just you react to people and around you and the ball and, you know, and, and, and the lines of running and the offloads. And it doesn't matter whether there's 100,000 people there or or 50, but, you know, but building up to it, you, you sort of, uh, you know, in your mind as a young lad, you get quite overawed by it all so everything yeah, yeah. like that is a learning curve and over a few right. times of playing in front of big crowds you know, by the time I got to playing with Ulster in 99 it was like I'd done international rugby I'd been there so it was like my second coming really and that was yeah. like 
I didn't get in any way as nervous about things like what the crowd would be like or what the TV cameras would be like would be. It was just, that was like, well, just bring it on, you know? Yeah. And was you someone, did you need an early touch or could you could you be patient enough to wait for your involvement to matter? Yeah, do you know what? I can't really remember from that side how, I mean, I suppose, again, a lot of the time, you know, as a fullback, you probably, I might get to kick off to start the game. Yeah. It's a nice way to start a game or... You know, a lot of teams would kick long in the early days. I was quite confident under the high ball. So a long kick, as long as you didn't drop it, it was a nice way of getting the ball, putting the ball back into the crowd. You know, it would just get you in the game early on. But but that was the thing. The thing I remember about Oral was just, we just played a really good brand of rugby. You know, it was like, it was, so from the off, it was, if I got the ball, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, by the time I got to our lot, it was kicking the ball back into spaces. We, we'd go, if someone kicked the ball to us, you'd have Luger outside, you'd have Austin Healy outside. It was like, just get the ball moving and we'd, we'd have a go. It was, everything was like, Mike Mike Slammon's philosophy was like, you know, just the game's there to be played and if you get the ball and you want to back yourself and go for it, you would. What, you had a bit of a free roll though, mate, yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah. I mean, some say, like Dan Luger played for England in that in the World Cup, didn't he? And there was Healy yeah. and Vyinga Twigamala's brother. And it was just young lads and everyone was like, you know, we're not standing around here waiting for the old Oral forwards to give us the ball. If, no, if you got can't stay full, that's how it oh, went. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was a real good brand of rugby. And I think that was another reason why I broke into the Ireland team that year, because a lot of people were coming to watch. I mean, you said there about getting sort of tapped up nearly. I mean, I remember when it was, because it was technically amateur, that the game had gone professional yeah. club level. I think Salford Rugby League came to watch me and then I went and met Andy Gregory and was talking about maybe going to Rugby League. But, but I mean, uh, you know, thankfully for me, I didn't, you know, even though it was a nice offer, I was still yeah, in the yeah. last year of university and, you know, the game was on the prefaces of going to like professional level anyway. And I then broke into the Irish setup because I just, you know, held my nerve a little bit and waited for the call and got through. So I'm glad that, you know, I'm not sure I would have been a great rugby league player, but, you know, but there were people knocking on your door, seeing what you were doing, offering you money and things like that at that stage. So when you go in, when you get in them approaches, like that's one that you took semi-series because you went and met them and had a walk around, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, when no. you're walking around, what's going, what's going through your head? And did you know much about Salford, about rugby league? Well, I mean, I loved rugby league. Growing up, I'd watch a lot of rugby league. Yeah. You know, that Wigan team of the 90s, wasn't oh, it? All the Challenge Cup finals yeah, and stuff, and yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and so in that way, you know, it was just, um, you know, and Andy Gregory was like someone, you know, we'd all watched him and he was good. And he, but, you know, I just felt just the way I was as a person. I thought, listen, this is another opportunity to, you know, and I was honest with him. I said, listen, I probably won't be, I won't be coming at the moment because I'm happy doing what I'm doing. But his, he was like, well, come and meet us and see how you feel. And I took my dad, we went to meet them and they're a really good club, really professional club. Um, don't you know, burn a bridge to, if you don't have to, do you? Well, that was it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, I, and I, you know, I was just to say, you know, I was happy, you know, probably moved a lot right in the days would move clubs. I was quite ruthless with how I, you know, even if I was doing well somewhere, if I felt there was a better offer or a better opportunity for me, then I, I, I took it and it was quite selfish. And I suppose, you know, the same happened in the professional era as well. You know, if I felt over a couple of years I wasn't getting in or it was just wasn't playing as much as I wanted, it was a better chance to do something else, I would do it, you know, because I just yeah. thought life's too short. And, you know, you either become a one-club man and play for years and get that really, or you do what's best for you and you look after yourself. Yeah. So what comes after Oral, mate? And 
and why? Well, that year at Oral was the year I broke through the Irish team. So suddenly from Whirlwind, they'd broken into the A-team with Ireland and then was playing the first cap against Wales and I got man the match in Dublin and then next, suddenly two weeks later, I'm playing the last game as Five Nations against England at Twickenham. It was like all the tick boxes in one go. And it was at that time that, you know, the game had gone openly professional um, at international level. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then a club called Richmond came in and they were like, they had a lot of good players, the Cornell brothers and uh, Ben Clark had all signed and, and they just put this tremendous offer to me. So, you know, you know, looking back, it was probably, you know, again, I went then from the chat from back to the championship, but we had this great team that we got, we got up to the premiership. But, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the shame for me was that probably curtailed my involvement in the Irish team because I didn't have a great game the following season against Samoa. And then because I wasn't at the, you know, on TV every week in the premiership, it was like, it was quite easy for them to say, well, you know, until you're back in the premiership, we'll, we'll sort of, uh, you know, you're not going to be getting a look in. So, but... A bit out of sight, out of mind, a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it was a great, you know what, it was a great couple of years. It was very, very professional. I mean, it was literally, you know, you imagine sort of how those Wigan teams train, you know, people like Scott Cronell would be talking to me about what it was like training alongside sort of, you know, Andy Gregory and, you know, Farrell and people. And it was just, you know, there's some, there was a guy, Alan Bateman, um, wonderful sort of played, being like NRL player of the year. He was a Welsh centre. He came, took me under his wing and he was just a great, you know, just trained with him all the time. And it was like, you know, the, the wealth of experience I got there at Richmond when, when I did then leave and go back to Ireland with Ulster or back, you know, to play in Ireland yeah. with Ulster. It was just, you know, that, that was probably the making of my career really being there in terms of the foundations of game. I mean, it obviously set me up a little bit because it was good, a good financial thing to go there and stuff. But, but for me, you know, once, once I, I, you know, I, I didn't get in the team every week and an offer came to go to Ireland, I went to Ireland and I just felt, you know, I was then 25, I'd had a few years at that level, 24, 25. I just felt, I knew what being a professional really meant, you know, meeting people yeah. like Alan Bateman and Scott Quinnell, you know, they were just, you could tell that was where their life was professional. They, everything they did was geared up to being better and to being ready to go on a Saturday. Yeah. So you're in your mid-20s, mate. Are you starting to to have a bit of a, a vocal input into shapes? And without knowing it, are you maybe taking a little bit of something from everyone you're coming across and creating your inner cult sort of thing? I think so. I mean, I say, I mean, I think I've always been one of those where I think experiences give mould you as a person, don't they? I mean, I was yeah, starting yeah. now, I'd had a lot of different experiences, you know, and even at that point then I'd had ups and downs, you know, mostly up until the Irish selection, it was ups, 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 and then went signing for Richmond, all of a sudden I was at this you know, club where they were signing, you know, any player who looked like half decent banging, so you had a lot of competition, and then that was probably my first taste of like, all oh, right, I might not be good enough for this now because I've been dropped or I'm not playing every week. And then, yeah. so instead of doing that, you've just got you've just um, yeah, a little but, bit. But, yeah. but again, because it was around a lot of really professional players, you know, there's no you don't sulk and feel sorry for yourself. You've got to work hard to get back in the team, or you've got to work hard to improve yourself, even if you want to move on because you want other clubs to look at you and to be yeah, someone yeah. who you think play you did want you to play for them. So, so then again, like everything, it was a little bit of a quirk of fate in it, but I ended up 
you know, my, my actual Irish roots were sort of Dublin and Navan from my father, but suddenly there I was going off to Northern Ireland to play for Ulster. Um, and it, and that again was just through the people I'd met in the Irish set up like David Humphreys, Mark McCall, who who were going back to Ulster, and they were like, "Listen, you know, we, we think you'll do really well here. We're building a good team, and we just need a we need a top front line goal kicker, and you know, you you could come here and enjoy it." And I was a bit, well, yeah, you know, I'm not playing as much as I wanted at Richmond, and you know, I had a, had a year left on my contract, but I managed to sort of get myself out of that and get to Ireland and. That was probably, you know, my most successful couple of years of my whole career then in Ulster. So how, how do you initiate them sort of chats? How do you go and say, do you tell them you've got an opportunity or do you seek a release first and then? Well, I, th- I think it was just, well, it was like a mutual thing. I mean, it, you know, it, I knew that I was sort of coming to the end of my Richmond journey and, you know, the guy who did sign, the Australian fullback, Matt Penny, was a good player, but he was nobody, he's not, a brilliant player by any stretch of the imagination. And I just, I could tell it was probably suit them. You know, I was on a reasonable contract and it just was, I mean, I didn't have an official agent as such then. It was just a guy used as a lawyer and it was just literally like, you know, we, we just, I was able to get, you know, contract release and I went to the next moment signing with the Irish Rugby Union going to Ulster. So, uh, you know, it, by that point, it wasn't really, you know, I could have stayed at Richmond and earned a lot more money, but it was, for me then, it was, you know, I was mid-twenties and was fit and trained hard. I felt You're thriving, mate, aren't you? That's what you're yeah, after, that. And I wanted to play, yeah. yeah. And I saw, and I'd had a taste of international rugby and thought, you know what, I'm a better player now than when I played at 21, 22. So, you know, I want, I want to give myself a shop window to play. So I went back to Ulster to play in the Interprovincial Championships and the European Cup and see where I got to. And, uh, you know, as much as it didn't get my full international career back on track, it was like, you know, the rest is history, as they say, to win the European Cup with Ulster was still the greatest thing I've ever done. I was going to say, you domestically played at the absolute elite and, yeah. con- and conquered, really, for, yeah. for a better use of a word, mate. Yeah, I mean, that the Ulster story, I mean, people, you know, there's been probably books written and everything on it, but I mean, just, it was just, um, it was just whirlwind. I mean, we were the most unfancied team and, it just shows, it was a bit like old, it was very much the analogy, be like the old FA Cup stories, you know, like the Wimbledon, uh, thing. you know, the fact we were so unfancy probably enabled us to get a bit of a like head start over teams because a lot of the French teams especially looked down and thought, are oh, these lot of crap, they're not worth even sort of like taken seriously and then we turned them over week on week and yeah. you know, suddenly, you know, we, we just, we had a lot of luck in the draw with, we got like a home draw in the quarterfinal against Toulouse, a home draw in the semi-final against Stadford and then we ended up effectively at home at Lansdowne Road in Dublin. You need luck, don't you? Yeah, and that was yeah. it. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't think back then, we were like a lot of the teams now, the provincial teams, and I like Leinster and Ulster could go away to big clubs and win away. We're back then. Irish rugby wasn't geared up to that, but you give us like, you know, a wet, windy night on Friday night in Belfast and, you know, and Humphrey's putting bombs into the air. We, we'd cause mayhem for the opposition. The crowd were like on top of it and on fervour. And it was just, it was brilliant. It was just, yeah. it's still the best memories ever that. And, you know, and all, and genuine lads as well, like over there, you know, that was their community. That was where, that was like someone winning the Challenge Cup with Saints or Wigan if you lived in the town centre. For those lads, yeah. you know, that was their life. And, you know, you, you could just tell, having gone from London where, 
you know, with all due respect, no one would have known if Richmond were playing or anyone, you know, in a big place like that. It's not that. Yeah, it's not yeah. the be all and end all of the community, is it? But in places like Belfast, when the team started to do well, we were like superstars. It was like being a footballer, professional footballer. People were stopping you in the street and <laughs> get it on top. Yeah, and it was brilliant. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. just like you know, it was literally like your dream of what it would be. And and that, you know, it was a, just a roller coaster. And it, like we ended up, you know, conquering Europe and the rest is history, as they say. Was there ever, was there a point there where you might have sat down and maybe individually or as, as a team and thought you could do something? Because there's always a spell where you, you feel unplayable at times, don't you? Like you could... Yeah. Like everything feels right, even before a game, you think it just feels good. Was there ever yeah. a time? I think I think it just was a, t- a turning point for us was because it because it was home and away in the European Cup. I mean, it was that format like the league. Yeah. So we we started on a bit of a damp squib because we drew against Edinburgh and everyone fancied us to start well because we had a good side and then they got a late drop goal. We drew like thirty something all. And then we went away to Toulouse and we got absolutely mullered, like 40 points. And it was a bit like, oh, okay. And then, so there was all the pressure was off and everyone was like, right, this off. And we won in Wales and then we came back uh, and we beat Toulouse at home then. And I think that was the turning point for me. All of us, it wasn't like we just beat them by, you know, a fluky kick or something. We actually outplayed them and outscored them. And even though they had all these players like Entomac and, uh, you know, uh, Palouse, the French captain, it was like... Yeah. We started looking around going, do you know what? And we were training. It was a bit bizarre going back to Ireland. It was a little bit like old school. They were training in the evenings and lads had jobs in the day. And oh, I'd come okay. this fully professional environment at Richmond where they had psychi- psychologists and dietitians. I was thinking, they haven't even got a proper gym here or anything. You know, it was that type of thing. And then the coach changed the whole culture of it, a guy, Harry Williams. And all of a sudden, you know, we just, and then we beat Toulouse and it was like, you know what, if we get our act together here and we keep doing what we're doing, working hard, we could do something there. And we won away in Edinburgh, which ended up by a quirk of fate. We won the group and um, and we ended up playing Toulouse again, ironically, in, in the quarterfinal at home. And that, we turned them over and then suddenly, you know, you like look and go, well, we're one game away here from playing in the European Cup final and we've got a home draw. Um, in Belfast and that was the turning point really the confidence was sky high and you know even then Stade Francais were like the Real Madrid the rugby they were literally yeah, like, yeah. You know, the racing it was like every top player in France played for them and you know we were just thinking oh we don't want to get hammered here at home in front of all your own supporters live on grandstand you know and uh, <laughs> and we and we had the best game ever we beat them 33-27 and just blew them away and just you know really played well and you know, for me, it was a great day because a lot of crucial kicks came down to sort of, you know, holding your nerve. And that was the bit probably I get remembered for more than anything. But yeah. it was just, that was the point where you were just like, whoa, whoa. And then suddenly, you know, we were effectively, the big pressure then was playing Colomier, who, you know, aren't really much of a team. Now they were in the way of us winning the European Cup. And, you know, they were the least fancied team like ourselves. It was just then about, delivering on the day and make sure we were professional and we won the game and that's what we did. Just sounds like it was meant to be. I believe in that sort of thing as well, to be honest with you, mate. But it just it was meant to happen that way if he has won it. And yeah, it did feel like that. You know, and I and I look and I feel sorry sometimes because I do a bit of commentary and stuff for the, you know, and talk to 
you know, do all this stuff over there. And you're like, yeah. you know, they've had some great teams in the last few years and always just fallen short. And, and you nearly feel embarrassed because we were the team that won it back in the day. But, you know, I'd be, I'd be the happiest person ever if the modern breed won it because they're so professional, so good. But but the level of competition they're playing in now, you know, the, Massive, you know yeah. it's just, man, everyone's so meticulous. So to win game on game, week on week against the likes of Leinster and Toulouse and... You know the equivalent to Stade Francais and all these teams. You just, you just, you know, you say still it comes down to sometimes a bounce of a ball or a, a refereeing decision, whether you get a yellow card or a red card and things like yeah, that yeah. You know, can really affect them. But so the the one thing I'd say is your media handbook will tell you to the week of a big game. It's just another game. We're doing the normal things, and it isn't, is it? Makes rouse the week building up to that European Cup final and. And what's your processes? Do you know what? It was, I mean, for me personally, I just because I was so confident that season, I know things were going well with the kick, and I was like, get reputation again. I mean, I just went back to I didn't get too embroiled. There was a bit of media stuff, and they had lots of these things going interviews. But for me, I just thought my my sanctuary was getting out on the pitch and practicing and just making sure. You know, I I was that point then, and I thought this is as good as I've ever played, as good as I've ever kicked. So. For me, I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to do everything I can possibly do. So at least I can look myself in the mirror and think if it doesn't go, you know, because as a kicker, you can easily miss a kick, a key kick or anything. But if you've, like a golfer, you know, if you're practising all the time, you can look yourself in the mirror and go, what else can I do? You know, if a ball hits the pin and goes the other way or, you know, a kick hits a post and go, you can't control that. But, you know, but your preparation, you can control. And I, I suppose because there was so much fever for the final and, you know, scrambling for tickets and family. I, I just immersed myself in hiding away a bit and getting out on the pitch and doing a lot of extra practising. And then I felt ultra confident going into the final. Yeah. Plus, if you do that much hard work off game there, that one kit that you might Snapchat, it'll find its way back where you want it to go anywhere, yeah. won't it? No, it go felt on. like that. I mean, it did yeah. feel... And again, you know, an interesting one for you there on that. I mean, I, I said that recently in one of the things I did with the old slot, but you know, most of the time I was like, you know, normal kicker, even Johnny Wilkinson would be petrified with nerves. It's what nearly kept you going, that lying awake, you know, in the morning, thinking, God, what if I slip on the backside or what if I do this wrong or my boots aren't the right length studs today? Because, But that day I woke up, it was just, it was like I'd suddenly, you know, what probably the likes of Ronaldo or Messi feel like. Every I just got up and thought, this is my day, I'm going to be... You know, not going to miss anything, not going to let anyone down, and that I never felt like that. But it just had this inner sort of peace about myself, where you know, and it was mad, really. And you know, luckily it was it was true. You know, I did well, knock no, everything no. over, and you know, they weren't necessarily difficult kicks, but but my temperament that day was just utter tranquility, and felt really like the moment was just there for me to seize well you know normally yeah. I'd be petrified before a big game like that but yeah, it was so a one spot for you yeah it's mad yeah. as well but it shows the key of psychology doesn't it you know you think mm. and these top top players who you know they're just to be to feel like that all the time takes a lot of you know probably a bit of arrogance but it also takes yeah. a lot of self-belief doesn't it and yeah again you know for me that day the practice the training the fact that I was on a good run of playing well up to that final, it just it just allowed me to feel that self belief that I didn't normally didn't normally have. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the best stuff can be all just walking away from an edit and being able to leave it there. 
Like, yeah, yeah, of course, yes, yeah. Correct the bad with a good, or double yeah. your good up, isn't it? Or follow a bad with a bad, yeah. I know, it's true. I mean, even yeah. the, I mean, the funny you say that as well, because the doctor, the, the guy, uh, there's the doctor there, and uh, David Ayer, when he was a, he was a famous player in there, I mean, he got, he said to me in the early few weeks of being, he goes, I notice every time you miss a kick, or something like that, I can tell you really let it get to you a bit. Um, and he said, just wipe it away on your shorts. And I, I even do that now if something annoys me in school or anything, or you know, I'll just wipe it away. It's as if to uh, say, just forget it's gone. Because a lot, you know, a lot of us we make a mistake, and you know, you're still dwelling on it ten minutes later. Yeah, you carry it gone, with you. Yeah, you've dropped the ball or you've misplaced the pass. Nothing's going to change that. So wipe it away and start again, isn't it? That's it. Make your next action positive, isn't it? Yeah. And and try and double that up then. So the, the one thing I've noticed, mate, is you downplay the fact that you can actually play rugby. Like, you go back to you, but I know you're grinning behind your hands, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you go back to your nudging and you're kicking, and as much as you talk about your goal kicking, you just out of hand kicking's really good. I remember we played against you away, and you, you kicked off, and I was stood under the kick. <laughs> I weren't looking at the chase, mate. It felt like it was, on, like it was in the air forever. And when I looked to see where it had travelled, Someone's feet were in me first where they jumped <laughs> over the top of me. Yeah, yeah. But it's because your ability to put it where you want allows them yeah, to get yeah. there. But you were more than just a kicker. Your distribution was good, your organisation was good, and you played in the right parts. You earned the right to play, but you played. Yeah, so yeah. why why do you... F- I don't mean to put you on the spot, but why do you go yeah. back to you kicking a lot when you can play? Because you don't get to the oh, level no, you've been yeah. at. I mean, I suppose, yeah. I mean, probably just from the Ulster point of view that that was you know, the one thing that really stood out because that won us a lot of games. But, yeah, yeah no, I mean, that, yeah, it probably does. I mean, you know, I think for me, I, you know, it was a shame I didn't have that little bit more pace. I've no doubt whatsoever if, if it had been a little bit faster, would easily have played another. You know, I, I, I said this before, to me, you know, like Gervin Dempsey, lovely lad, played for Leinster, was around the same time as me. You know, didn't think he was half the player I was in terms of ability and reading the game, but was just really quick player. Played okay. 89 times, 89 times for Ireland at fullback. And you're like, you know, he wasn't that good. He was a solid footballer, had a load of pace, but he wasn't that good. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you know, so but yeah, for me, I mean, I just I say, I mean, I think in some ways the fact that when I was younger, I wasn't blessed with out and out pace. I probably had to work harder at positional play and and my skills and you know. You know, I really did. I really did have a good, good level of skill. So, you know that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's nice for you to say that. I mean, you know, I think, you know, people forget that when they're playing for Ulster, scored like five or six quite crucial tries in that season. And you know, and it was just, yeah, I always felt I was really good at reading the game and being in the right position. But, um, but yeah, I mean, probably for me because at that top level, that's what I was known for. That's where I delivered, and I rarely, I rarely didn't deliver. But you know, and again, a bit like the Rob Andrew, not saying him in any way, like like Rob Andrew was a quality player. But you know, it shocked me when I played against him. I thought, here's a fella I've grown up thinking he's an out and out goal kicker or kicker out of hand. But the guy was just simply on a different level of terms of reading the game and you know, re re you know, getting other people into the game. So that that yeah, that is a, that is a quality, I suppose, to play. But. Um, yeah, I mean, again, at Ulster, a bit like, bit like the oral days, you know, the, you know, we had some good players like David Humphreys, Mark McCall, you know, Jan Cunningham played for Ireland, they were, they were just really talented players. So, you know, being around them, it was exciting times to play open rugby with them. So what happens 
from Ulster were where does your career take you there, mate? Well, I mean, you know, we, we obviously won that European Cup. The following season wasn't as successful, but again, I was playing well. I've broken back into the Irish training squad. I was training for the World Cup in 99 and then just got really unlucky. You know, <laughs> at the time, I was really annoyed that, that um, Gordon Darcy, a young lad who was 19, got in ahead yeah. of me, just broke broke in ahead of me at the end. I was fuming. <laughs> Probably about 100, 130 cap later, as I could say, Gatlin made the right choice there, can't you? But, but it was, you know, but it was one of them where, so again, I just felt, even though I loved it, and, you know, obviously I had this name for myself in, in Ulster and they were fuming that I wasn't getting picked for Ireland, but I just had a really good offer to go to Stade Francais. And I, I was at that point that I was sort of 27, 28. I was thinking, well, I've got, you know, am I either going to, play for Ireland and get my international career on track now, it's probably going to disappear. And when I didn't get in the 99 World Cup squad, just missed out, having done all the training and everything, and Conor O'Shea yeah. got injured, and thinking, this is my chance, I'm going to get selected, and I missed out. I just thought, well, you know, Stade Francais came knocking, and it was, again, you know, really lucrative deal, considering what was on at Ulster. And just the chance to play abroad, so to go to France, and then I did a year there, the three-year contract, did a year there. I could have stayed on, but you know, again, I wasn't getting loads of game time at Stade Francais because they had like Dominici and Dominguez playing nine and uh, playing ten and fifteen. So, just had a really good chance to go to to Italy and went over there and ended up staying in Italy for three years. So, you know, I just I look back and think I was quite blessed really to play to have all these rugby experiences and yeah. to finish to finish those last few years in France and Italy was just. You know, amazing looking back, and you know, especially in Italy, where I was there for three years, learned the language, and got a lot of friends there still. Now go back to Italy quite a bit. It was just, it was a really good town as well, Treviso. It was a proper rugby town, and again, similar things. Whether you won or lost mattered because you'd be meeting, going to the supermarket. Yeah, I can people. imagine, mate. You'd have a good game. You were like people buy you a drink at the bar. You were, yeah, you wouldn't show your face even to uh, go to church or something like that. <laughs> if you'd lost. Especially if they put a tab in you. Know. tomatoes at you and stuff, you know. So it just felt like it mattered. You know, Stade Frontier was a little bit different because it was Paris and, you know, it was a beautiful city. And But again, a bit like Richmond in London, no one really knew whether you'd won, lost, home, you know, whatever. Rugby player, football, it wouldn't matter. Well, in the small communities, like, Treviso, it was like their life. It was like a proper, proper good place to live. Yeah. So how did the spell go with Treviso? Is it something you'd encourage people to do? Yeah, no, I, I yeah. mean, I loved it. I mean, and again, this is where, you know, you're saying there about the friendships you meet in rugby and the contact. I mean, a guy, Andy Moore, the scrum half, for Welsh scrum half, who played in me at Richmond, he was like a step ahead of me and had gone to Treviso. And, um, and he... And I sort of knew he played there. So when I got a potential offer to go there, um, I rang him up and he was just glowing about the place and the people and the quality of life there. And uh, yeah. you know, and he was right. And I, my wife and I, we we got we got you know married when we went out there. We you know we're, she's from around here as well. So we we went out together and we got married. Then we had our first daughter was born there. So it's lovely going back now. You know they still. So as I remember, I took a lot of the school trips. We used to do like a rugby festival there every year before COVID. It was brilliant. And yeah, there's a lot of warmth from the people there towards you know, the ex-players. And, you know, I, I made a big effort with the language and to 
you know, throw myself into the into the way of life out there. And it was just and they appreciate that, I imagine. Yeah, though, I loved yeah. It. yeah, people are great and, and really warm to you. And I could have stayed out there for a few more years, but just um you're in the life animal. happens, doesn't it? Yeah, my mum wasn't yeah. too well and you know, I'd lost my dad when I was in France. So I just thought, well, you know, life's too short, we'll get back and we just had our first daughter, Kira, so it just felt the right time to go, really, and then come back to the UK. Right, so where did it bring you back to? Well, back to Oral, full circle, back to Oral. Right. So I went, um, again, Oral just had that, you know, the day, the wheeling. wheeling yeah, day of wheeling. Pull, he'd yeah. pull the plug a bit. But, I mean, for me, with my mum being ill, I wasn't looking for, like, a full-time contract. And, um, you know, it was Mark Nelson was the coach. He was at Sale and, and was also, like, coaching Oral. He said, well, come back. You do Tuesday, yeah, Nelly. Thursday night. Yeah, Nelly, good lad, Nelly. And you got me back Tuesday, Thursday night and playing on a Saturday. And it was like, you know, it wasn't brilliant money or anything, but it was, it was okay. It's like a little bit for me in between. I did a bit of coaching and got myself, Mike Slemon got me some hours at Merchant Taylor's and I was working at St. Anton's for a bit. So it was sort of my pathway into you know, stopping professional rugby and starting to look at a career and have the teaching as a sideline with, 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 to get into. So, you know, it all sorts of panned out. The only shame with Oral going back, you know, again, I, I was like really on fire. I wasn't missing anything with my kicking. And then I just mad, mad one, just suddenly got a really bad sort of what's called Gilmore's groin hernia. And I hadn't had an injury, apart from head injuries, I hadn't had an injury at all in like you know 14 years and I picked up this real which would have been solved with like I could have been in and out of hospital four weeks but because of obviously the money situation they didn't have the money yeah, to pay yeah. for the off and I had to wait for the NHS and the, the, the week the season ended I got a letter through the door saying you know, your operations next week it was one of those you couldn't script yeah. it but, uh, but I mean I think I'd done enough around the team at that point where they then asked me to be director of rugby for a year uh, but it was, you know, the club was on its knees at that point. You know, the, the budget they were talking about to recruit players, and and it just felt like my hands were tied behind my back, and I felt really disappointed. Not not in anyone in particular, because the club were just trying to do what they could do, having been basically shafted a bit by Whelan. So, yeah. you know, but it, in a way, it was probably the making of me in terms of it went, you know, made me think I'll go, I'll go full time and try and get the teaching certificate and go into teaching it because I just saw that life of maybe you know the bad side of rugby yeah yeah. you know I'm bouncing around sort of effectively like non-league football equivalents just thinking where's your next you know your three games away from the sack where's your next paycheck coming from I thought well I've I've got a master's in sports science I could potentially get a teaching certificate in 12 months and I did that and you know got the job at St Anton's and you know as much as you're never going to be a millionaire being a teacher it's it's, it's a great way of life and it's a good way of giving back to the game a bit and with the, the rugby side of it as well. Yeah. All them environments you've been in and the one that least has the funds and that you get that type of injury in it it's crazy. Yeah, I know yeah. well, I don't know and that's yeah. it and then that was, I... you know that you know even that and injuries I mean, that, that was annoying that but then just as I decided, well, you know, to finish completely, I went back to Coldy for a couple of years, then I broke my leg. So all the injuries came at the end, you know. Yeah. It's, so it's all the, the tough level. It was like probably avoiding contacts. Flying. Yeah, it's just <laughs> suddenly I had to go back to 10 and play a bit harder and getting yeah. smashed about and getting injured left, right and centre. 
Because I remember you used to play in an car for a bit, didn't you? No, I did, yeah. Well, yeah, to be yeah. honest, I did actually. That was the one thing over the years. I did suffer quite a lot from the concussions and getting knocks to the head. I mean, it wasn't necessarily me making tackles. It was probably more just getting hit. And especially in Italy, there were a few, got a few high shots in Italy and got right, knocked right. out a couple of times. So they just... They just advised me to wear one, and that was that was sort of like uh, that was my deal to keep playing. I had to wear one of them, like a bit of a girl. Yeah. Maybe stand out a tad as a bit. Yeah. Of, oh, yeah, one sec. No worries. No, no, go on. Yeah. Yeah. No. So when when you're around them types of teams, and then you've gone from playing to the director of rugby side, how did then chats become? Because did you just like it pretty direct as a player? Did you just want the honesty and, and straight to your face? Because some lads can't cope with with that uh, confrontation, yeah. can they? So, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was very lucky. That, you know, I finished at Oral. I was just qualified as a teacher. And as, as I went to Coldy, who obviously, you know, as you've seen, have gone to the championship yeah, yeah. and they always had a decent budget. And they looked after. They're very generous. Consider it was like, you know, effectively semi-pro they looked at they allowed me really to still be doing that whilst I was training I was not next to nothing at school just doing a training year so that got me through 12 months and then I suppose I was around another guy called Matt Holt who was a quite straight talking prop hooker he played at, he was an Australian lad he played at Leeds and we just had a good couple of years there really enjoyed it I mean you know, I, I I probably, as I went down the leagues, I probably sometimes, I mean, I was laughing the other day with one of the lads playing golf with, saying the, the, everyone used to drop the ball on purpose just to see me, my head explode. Like, <laughs> they used to do it on purpose. It was like, I, I sort of laughed, but then it made me even angrier, you know. But I just felt even with, and it's the same with schoolboy players, you know, you obviously have more empathy for people who aren't as good as other players. But I think in life, you've got to set your standards. And if it's things like in training, people, you know, being switched on and passing correctly and doing things right and warming up correctly and being on time, you know, they're traits that whether you're Scott Cornell, one of the greatest rugby league and union players ever, or whether you're, you're a little Johnny who's turning up to a session, you can be on time, you can be switched on and you can be, ready to, to listen, can't you? So Yeah, of course you can. Anyone. Um, but, yeah, i probably take it all a bit too seriously if I, if I <laughs> reflect on how I act sometimes. But, you know, I think that's just... I'd like to say that's more passion and enthusiasm than, uh, and a little bit of madness as well. Yeah. So, and then, was it back to Anselmians? And did you finish at Anselmians, mate? Well, no, I did I did a few years at Anselmians there, which yeah. I think we were, our paths crossed. And then... And I ended up, and then at Berkner Park, went to Berkner Park for five years, and that was a bit. I was, I was to be honest, I was in my forties then. I was literally thinking, why the hell am I still playing rugby? But, but I sort of still got that, like, like we all do, that sadistic kick out of playing rugby and you know being part of teams and round people and you know saying that to loads of people recently. You know, like you know, you'd have just you'd. Like yesterday, I was saying to you that like the boiler went in the rental, you know, ring one of the lads from the, from the from park, you know, two hours later he's round there looking at fitted it, yeah. the bit they needed doing today. That reliability of contacts and people and the environment you're in is great with rugby, isn't it? People you can it is, mate, on, yeah. people, you know, friends, whatever level you play at. And that's what I try and say to the kids at school. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't play professional rugby or you don't get a penny from the game. Oh. You you can still be part of a great club and environment where. 
you respect I'll open doors all over the world to do anything can, yeah. Yeah. exactly and that's where with Park I was just I'd sort of run myself into the ground a bit with Anselms they'd been up and down a little bit in terms of what they wanted out of the game yeah. and how they wanted to do it and you know, and then my mate Martin O'Keefe, Cakes O'Keefe, he was working with me on terms. He just said, listen, come to Park. You won't have to do any of the nonsense, director rugby stuff. Just you be coach. You know, I'll do all the sort of chasing people up on Friday nights when people are ringing, saying they're ill and all that. Yeah, so the rugby manager stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and you just concentrate on, you know, coaching and playing a bit. And in the end, they loved the play and I was around good players. The, the good thing about Park back then, you know, they, they weren't a great team, but they, but they, they made themselves into a good team because everyone worked really hard. You know, it was a bit like the sort of like witness and that. It was just like, you know, just lads who just, you knew what you were going to get out of them. It was a hard, tough battle every game. And, you know, even though the quality sometimes wasn't always amazing from players, they all wanted to train. The, the opposite sometimes of the last couple of years at Ansons where it just became, you know, just hard to get people to commit to training and things. Thinking if you if you want to play a decent level of any sport, you're not prepared to train twice a week. Then you're, you're not in trouble. Like, yeah, you're in yeah, big trouble. No. So, yeah. so that was a real sort. That probably kept me going a few more years. I loved it, and you know, probably played a bit too much to what I wanted. But, but again, you know, I I just felt having played a decent standard, and still feeling like I could coach a bit anyway from ten. I just thought, you know, I'd sooner play first team alongside good players than drop down the teams and end up playing third team and all this. Yeah. Where, you know, he gets such a mix of players. That's where you get more injuries, don't you? You get one yeah, fella doing too one, much and that. One yeah. fella hitting you hard. There's another one's touching you, you know, trying to half tack you. So first team for me was you knew what you were going to get. You know, every game was a bit of a battle, and if you yeah. know. You got smacked by someone, so be it. You know, that, that was par for the course, wasn't it? So I enjoyed yeah. that. And then really lockdown just sort of stopped everything all of a sudden. There was no school rugby. There was no club rugby. And for me, it just gave me that stand back where I thought, you know what, this is probably what I've needed. I'm like, you know, mid-40s and just able to sort of chill for a bit now. And then, yeah. uh, you know, and that's it. I haven't really got back into club rugby since then. I've just, I like going down to park to watch and have a bit of a lunch now and again or go up and watch if Ansarms are playing I might go and watch them in the future but with the school commitments on a Saturday morning it's sort of uh, you know you know, like last Saturday wasn't back home till two o'clock so it's that sort of I don't know how I ever did it all in one go really yeah. Yeah. this must have been made up to have me out of the house <laughs> so you, you semi-answered one of my questions do you mate because at the Wits and I'm sure other teams done it it was well known what you were capable of, where you'd been and what you'd done. There was a little bit of money at Anselmians that everyone was aware of. Yeah. We yeah, would yeah. we were told if we could get a grip you like get a grip you and yeah, let you know yeah. we know them type of things. Did you get a fair bit of that? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean the thing the thing with all that is and that's the problem with that sort of level when yeah. you know it it it's the hardest bit of that level. Like in professional rugby, or even at Oral, everyone's getting something or whatever, even when you were dropping that cold, he became like that. But it's that sort of when you go down the leagues and the odd person's getting this and that, it just makes it hard then, doesn't it? Because you there's some lads who you think, well, they probably deserve that. But you've got some club fellas and you've got other people. So you might, might someone they might bring in and it just it becomes too much of a gray area really doesn't it yeah. so so in a way going to park you know it, it was just they weren't paying people to play it was a bit like the coaches got a bit and people who did yeah. stuff but and it just felt again a bit more normal but you know it, it, it it's just 
I don't begrudge people. Like even now, you can tell in some of those leagues as players get. I don't begrudge them. I'd be two faced yeah, to, yeah. to say I did, but but I can see how. And I never took it personally when people gave you a dig or whatever, because that fair enough. But it was more that like I could see how that could unite other teams to think, because I'd done the same myself, you know. Yeah. And young them. lads buy into that, don't they? And yeah. go, oh, if he's on that, I'll give him a yeah. whack or whatever. Yeah, don't they? Cool. and that's good, yeah. you know. And that's what yeah. I mean. I I wouldn't have. You know, I knew what I signed up to there in terms of like, you know, I that's why I liked playing 10. A couple of times I went back to 15. I felt, I don't lie, I like being in the mix of it here. You know, I'm yeah. slowing down a bit and get, you know, if I get hit late, I'll hit someone else late. It's like, I quite enjoyed that. And and, uh, and that was part of what, you know, I suppose like, you know, sort of down those leads, stuff you do on a Saturday. The dark arts, like, isn't it? Yeah. Jail, wouldn't you? So as, you a, as a like quite frustrated teacher, you know, <laughs> basketball with someone you can't do yeah. anything nowadays it's like it was dodgeball every day <laughs> what I liked about those you know those those games and the, the lads at that level you know mostly afterwards everyone would have a pint together and just yeah. crack on it was good fun you know and you know it's just yeah probably it's like everything it was just uh, you know now and again there'd be a few like a bit of school doggery but most of the time I thought the level and the the, the camaraderie with other teams and the crack was, was that right like, yeah you know, and even at Ansam's you know there was a bit of that and we had a few of the Tongan lads and all that but, yeah, but I think yeah. everyone enjoyed going there and everyone was made to feel welcome and opposite teams had you know, a few beers, no one ever just sped off afterwards. Most teams sort of like, you know, and if you got beat by someone and they, they were made up because they'd beaten you because they thought a few lads were getting a few quid, well, that's even yeah. better, isn't it? Because as you say, that yeah. unites teams and it should do. And when I went yeah. to Park, it became, Park had a bit of a mantra with that because Martin O'Keefe, to be fair to him, Park had gone down that route of paying a lot of people and, you know, no marks for getting money, and he just got rid of all that, and he got kit for them, and he got them tours, and he did it because they yaw yawed for a bit, then they did go up, they come yeah. down, they go and up. That's they what happens. Yeah. It's the same as you've seen even with Ansam. It'll be the same again. They're, they're yeah. on the up again now, but you know, you, once you go down that route, which a lot of clubs do feel they have to, it's just you know, it's it's a way of staying up there, but it, it can easily just go pear shaped, can't it? Yeah. So, so I don't miss that. I can be honest, I don't miss that yeah. side of it, you know, because I, of the teams I played for, you know, it was the lads you could go to battle with was what I enjoyed more than anything. Do you know what I mean? Uh, at least they've got a good club now, mate. When you were there, it weren't all that. No, was it? that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, even things like that, you know, in those last few years for me, there, there was just an element of it. it was always hot air, but we're doing this, we're doing that, and then, and for me, you know, in the latter few years, I was quite happy with. You know, not many people were getting there. But it was about building, getting lads from the school to play, and we got we got it on an even keel, and it was good. But then, like all this, then ambition gets in the way of people, doesn't it? And suddenly, it does. It gets cloudy, doesn't it? You know, yeah, and everyone yeah. has an has an objective of where they think the club should be. But you know, going up a few levels in these leagues creates its own problems sometimes. It does it's great if you can sustain that, and the club can go with you and the second team stayed together and the third team is still playing. But if you're just basing it around one team and that's all you do, then it's, it's um, you know, after lockdown, a lot of clubs are short of players. It it can become quite, um, you know, it, it's quite a dangerous game to play, isn't it? Yeah, it'll bite you on the arse, mate, it will. Um, so, yeah, so a couple, just one more question before your daft questions, mate. Um, no, no. We talked a little bit about it off camera, but so out of them clubs, do many of them do, like, the old bar reunions and you get a chance to see yeah, everyone again. I mean, probably the mostly, I mean, are all are good because they've got a WhatsApp group and they've got like a lot of like, you know, 
oral alumni sort of thing. Uh, but it's just for me, it's just that little bit far away, really, in terms of you know, for a night out. Yeah. Um, park are good for like, you know, they have the lunches. So I still see because a few lot of the friends there and people are now. I'll go there. But I mean, in terms of Ulster, very good with the European stuff. It's still one of the things they celebrate. And, and you know, and they, they, they've sort of, um, with the modern era, they've, they've not sort of, they haven't felt like some millstone around the neck. They've been really good and, you know, appreciated what we did. So it's nice. I like going. My daughter loves rugby. She, she follows Ulster and Ireland rugby. So it's been nice to take her to the New Zealand Ireland game last year and they have the ex-players lounge and then at Ulster they're just, you know, a lot of the friends of mine are in, in the row I played with are on the committee and other things. So Gary Leslie was like, you know, well, is he chairman of Ulster or something? So, you know, he got me into the VIP bit and it's just, yeah, it's good. You know, I like that. I mean, you know, it, the shame for me, if, if Ulster was like the equivalent of sale and I could drive there in half an hour, I'd probably go all the time. But obviously, yeah. you know, with the school rugby and, the commitments with the family jumping on the plane every other weekend to go to Ulster is just not going to happen. No, it's a big ass, mate, isn't it? Right, mate, so a couple of daft questions for you. Go on, then. So, on. any pre-match superstitions? Uh, not really, apart from that, I was, I'm was quite obsessed with things like the pressure, ball pressure and things like that, so it wasn't wasn't unknown for me to take the balls home with me and sleep with the balls, the rugby balls, yeah, before a game. Right. So and just make sure, just I just that's having the right temperature. In Italy, they had these. What was one of the ones they used? Um, Mitres, which were horrible to go back to, having used Gilbert balls. Yeah. And, they, and then when they were brand new, they were just like um, they were just too hard. So I'd always make a point of blowing them up as hard as I could and leaving them in the boiler room overnight to get. And then when the next day, when you took the air pressure out, they just stretched a bit and they're a bit easier. Yeah, soft, like, you know, like kicking them in a bit. But uh, the, the, the nice is it that they blew up in the boiler room and they thought, they thought someone tried to blow up the club. So that didn't go down too well when they saw that it was me that had pumped up all the balls. But, but mostly uh, ball pressure was my sort of like, as long as I felt I had control over the balls I was using and pressure of them and how hard they were and all that, then I was all right. Uh, you know, class. Was fine, you know. <laughs> so the toughest player you played with and against Burning in mind, toughest is like the definition birdies for everybody. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, against I'd have to go just because he gave me. He probably ended my international career in one night. But Fyinga Twigamala, bless him. But he, Inga the winger. I mean, he was just he played for Samoa and he was just such a and a lovely fella afterwards. But as yeah. a, after he was sort of very deeply religious man, wasn't he? But he is, yeah. Well, well, sorry. As all the Irish lads were saying, when he, I ended up in deep prayer with two they said, he's, pray, he's praying for your international <laughs> career there, and he's not done a very fucking good job, you know? So <laughs> it was like, well, I'm never to be seen of again. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, but he lovely fella, bless him. And, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of playing with, I mean, lots of people, but I would say pound for pound, just the best player and the toughest player was Alan Bateman. Batman, he, you know, rugby league player, then went back to rugby union, didn't he? Welsh player, and just a really, just an unbelievably strong and tough player. You know, you'd have to have a shotgun to get him off the pitch. Yeah, right. So, your favourite away ground? Oof. Um, Bar in the wits. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably have to say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably have to say, um, probably Twickenham, just because of that moment, it was like, you know, it was. 
it was sort of, you know, as, a, as an English lad who was obviously an Irish squad player, for, you know, to play at Lansdowne Road and then two weeks later play at Twickenham. And I just remember, you know, we always came out first as the away team and they just opened the doors and then just the massive, you know, it, I'd practised the day before with the kick and it was big enough, but when it was full to the rafters, it was like, you know, it's a big game as well. Some occasion. And it was just, yeah. that, you know, that still sticks in my mind. There's like, you know, it wasn't the most intimidating place. Like there's places in France and Parc de France and, uh, you know, in Toulouse, intimidating, but just as an actual occasion, the stadium and the fact that it sort of been there with my dad for my first ever international to watch England play Australia in the in the 80s. It was like, you know, it just felt like sort of a really big occasion for us. It's probably my favourite away ground, definitely. Mad to say it's your away ground, isn't it? Yeah, the well, no, that's it. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, in terms of in an island jersey, definitely, yeah. yeah. So if you'd had a few, mate, and the microphone ends up in your hand in the club, what are you giving people? Oh, no, well, yeah, when you said that, I was still, I mean, I can't, I was, my voice is so bad, I'm the worst singer ever, so probably the most cringy thing ever, being like proper, like, as far as they were concerned, the Scouser was singing uh, the only one I could remember the words was you'll never walk alone so I sort of <laughs> out my, my sort of Ulster debut yeah. karaoke song on the way back from Galway on the coach was singing you'll never walk alone and nobody helped me out so I had to sing the whole version <laughs> you know how pitched you go on that so yeah. it wasn't the best like <laughs> right mate so if you're willing to I understand if you're not but you the one to fifteen that you oh, played God, with. Yeah, well, I'll have to just go off memory there. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd probably say just. I mean, crosses a couple of areas, but probably is this who I've played with really? Is yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Nick Popplewell definitely. Um, I, you know, Lions and Irish prop. He was um, just a great, great guy. Really, he was like sort of mentored me when I came into the Irish. Keith Wood, obviously, a hooker. Yeah, yeah. Um. And then guy Justin Fitzpatrick, who played for Ulster, he was like one, one of my best friends. He was really, really good player. Um, second row, I'd have to say, probably. Um, oh, second row would be, right, but yeah, Craig Quinnell. Yeah, and then Gary Longwell from Ulster played for Ireland as well. And then obviously, just you know, it could be a host of people, but in terms of. Um, Back row would have to be Scott Quinnell at eight. Yeah. Lad Andy Ward, who played for Ireland and Ulster, he was a sensational player at seven. And then six would probably be, um, you know, realistically would have to be Ben Clark, I think, in terms of like, you know, he was, wasn't it as proud, the top of his game when he was at Richmond, but just for him as a player and what his legacy he'd had with England. Yeah. Um, nine. Augustin Pichot, the Argentinian nine, was just a yeah. player. I mean, ten's a tough one because you've got like Dominguez at Stade Francais, but still to me, you know, David Humphreys, Ulster, was just, he was like a game changer, one of the best, most talented players I've ever played with, David Humphreys. Yeah. Could do a similar role to you would flip between 10 and 15 as well, didn't A little he? bit, yeah. I mean, yeah. he was just, he was a talented player. I mean, you know, yeah. just saying there, I mean, he was just, he was a lovely, lovely footballer and just, you know, very good temperament. Um, I mean, in terms of 12 would be Jonathan Bell, who was, um, he was like man of the match in the European Cup final. He's coaching at Ulster now, he's a, a defence coach, just a quality player. Johnny Bell played Irish 21s. I would have made my debut with him as well. So he, you know, good, good friend and a good, good, um, 
And again, Alan Bateman, just Alan Bateman was probably one of the best players ever. I think and to have been fortunate to play with him was was incredible. Christoph Dominici, another one, bless him, another the late Christoph. He um he was just just one of the best players ever. And to to have to to have graced rugby with him was something else. But he I, I used to be his like uh, training partner for the sprints on a Monday morning stuff for saying obviously he was like the fastest but he was like I was gonna say it, but you know forever. And he yeah. used to turn up with his he had his goal wash degree in his mouth as he was bringing the car and he just go, Maison, you come with me, slow Maison. <laughs> I think he just loved having me on a Monday. It was like his way of looking fast, just jogging yeah. against me. I was like busting the balls, trying to run against him. Um I mean, the other winger would have to be Simon Gagan. He was my roommate for Ireland, and he was just the craziest guy ever. Um, and it's tough, I suppose, like his fullback. I mean, probably, you know, think of someone who played sort of around the same school. I'd have to say Conor O'Shea. You know, Conor yeah, O'Shea yeah. was just a really, really nice lad and a genuine bloke and... You know, it was for me unfortunate because at the time when I was playing really well for Ulster, he was like Premiership Player of the Year and was just always just in ahead of me in the Irish setup. But lovely guy, lovely friend to train with, and again that level-headed bloke and you know nice fella. So you know, not wouldn't begrudge him getting the amount of games he did ahead of me. You've been listening to Trot the Eggin. Thanks to our sponsors by Del Sports. Follow us on Twitter at Trot the Eggin and Instagram at Trot underscore the underscore egg underscore in.